Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, we had another really neat podcast interview today with Julie Borlaug. Yeah, it was real honor to talk to her. She's the granddaughter of Norman Borlaug, who is the father of the Green Revolution, which is credited for saving a billion lives. Billion with a B. Yeah, that's quite impressive. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview. Julie Borlaug, welcome to the podcast. To kick things off today, would you mind giving us a little bit about your background? Hi, um, thanks for having me. I am Julie Borlaug and um, I come to agriculture genetically. And I say that because I'm the granddaughter of Norman Borlaug, um, was the recipient of a Nobel Peace Prize and uh, many consider him, well, he was father of the Green Revolution and, and a huge advocate and supporter of innovation in agriculture to feed the growing world and definitely for the utilization of smallholder farmers. I have spent the majority of my career in agriculture. I started at the Borlaug Institute for International Agriculture at um, Texas A&M University and was fortunate to get to work with USAID, uh, many private sector partners uh, and foreign governments and in-country partners. Um, one example would be a program we had in Rwanda where we worked with the wives of the genocide and helped them form coffee cooperatives, uh, taught them how to grow coffee, uh, how to wash coffee, how to pick it. We taught them the whole value chain and actually at this point in time, their coffee is now sold at Starbucks and other places. So it was wow. great to start at the beginning. And what came out of that was that, of course, everyone knows in agriculture and especially in international development, when you get the agrarian economy up and running, then comes the infrastructure. So the roads, the irrigation, then comes uh, healthcare and education. So it was a holistic uh, development project that was great to see. And what came out of our side on the um, coffee side was a genetics program that is now the coffee um, world coffee federation and they look at the genetics of coffee rust so it was a really exciting program and why that's important to me and, and my long background in in that is i got to see how the private sector from the united states or the multinational companies come in and provide some of their greatest technology free of charge, uh, how uh, smallholder farmers are um, struggling in other countries. It typically was always women and how basic technology, improved seed varieties, fertilizer, basic inputs could help their lives. And it was great to see how everyone could come together, create this community and, and build this program and, and the develop, develop it out so that we could then hand it over to the smallholder farmers and the rural village and they could take it and run with it. So that was what I'd spent the majority of my career in and uh, have worked in Africa, Asia, South and Central America. And now I work for a startup company and we work in gene editing. And we do, we are focusing on corn, soy and wheat. And the reason why we're looking at these crops is because they are uh, the most planted, utilize a lot of water, a lot of inputs. And uh, if we're gonna address climate change and sustainability, we've got to look at how we work with these crops and how we can work with genetics um, through gene editing to make them more resilient. So that is where I am today. 
It's really interesting. A few of the things you mentioned, you mentioned about the public-private partnerships and the good work that sometimes public companies do around the world, especially in places like Africa and other places where they donate different products and time and resources. And I think that story is not very widely known a lot of times, especially here in the U.S. I will say um, I have a lot of experience working public-private partnerships with um, Monsanto and uh, whether it was the WEMA program, so drought tolerant maize, and they had provided IP to, to these smallholder farmers in Africa, or was the Beechel Borlaug program where they provided full PhDs to students from international countries that could go and get a PhD anywhere in the world, whether it was the United States or Europe. And um, the purpose of the program was that they would then go back to their home institutions and build the capacity there. So I've done a lot of those, not, not only with Monsanto, but many others. And I think people don't realize how important that is, but how much the agricultural companies have stepped up and, and helped address what is going on in developing countries and how we can further them along. And I think what a lot of people in the United States don't always understand, um, they wonder why we are focused so hard on developing countries or you know, look in Kenya, why are we working so hard to, um, with the farmers in Kenya and getting them um, improved seed varieties. And the reason is when we open up their economies their new trade partners and everyone wants to trade within the United States. So it actually benefits the farmers here in the United States as well as everywhere else. So as we increase the capital for each country in developing nations, they then become partners and trade partners and um, customers of United States and Europe and other areas. So it's important that we continue to bring along those other countries. And it's important that not only the governments, but the private sector does it. I, I think a perfect example right now that everyone can understand is if you look at uh, what happened with COVID. And if you look at companies like Moderna, um, a, a relatively small um, company that uh, wasn't very old and what they were able to do with the government funding and, and the public-private partnership and how it benefited all, we can do that in agriculture and we need to do more of that. So you mentioned that this kind of work is in your DNA, basically. Is it recessive and... or dominant? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's additive. <laughs> it's gene edited. <laughs> A little genetics humor for you all out there. <laughs> we were really advanced in the 70s. <laughs> so not too many of us have had the opportunity. You mentioned you worked at the Borlaug Institute at Texas A&M. Not too many of us have had the opportunity to go to work at a place with our name on the door, so to speak. So that's pretty interesting. And so we'd really like to talk a little bit more about your grandfather and his legacy. What can you tell us about him? I'm sure it was an interesting upbringing for you because by the time you were born, he was already fairly well known. Yes. What's interesting is I don't think any of us of the grandchildren knew he won a Nobel Peace Prize. I did not realize it till I was a third grader. This really dates me. We had things called SRAs that you, you would do a, a reading. You would read the story and then do a um, question answer 
thing. And if you move, you know, past that, you moved up in levels. And I got one with my grandfather, which I thought was the coolest thing because I didn't really know he was famous. So that was the first time um, I understood that he was a little more important than I thought. And, and that was third grade. So I took him in third grade to show and tell with his Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and the funny thing is he was upstaged by a hamster <laughs> no, no kid cared no kid cared who norm borlaug was <laughs> someone's hamster was more important and the only question he got was um did uh the secret service come with him which you know so i think it's funny that he would go to you know different countries of the world and and treated as this huge dignitary and he'd come to you know my third grade class and a hamster was more important <laughs> that kind of um gives you that's a perfect example of our relationship with our grandfather growing up we just knew him we called him two daddy um, my brother was the first grandchild and my mother always called my grandfather daddy. So my brother thought it was his number two daddy. So <laughs> Norm Borlaug to the family was known as two daddy. And um, growing up, we just thought he was a man who lived on an airplane with a lot of suitcases and <laughs> popped through on holidays. Uh, he, my mom and uncle were raised in Mexico or where of course all of his work was done. So Mexico uh, was really home to him and my grandmother till um, my grandmother moved up in like 86 uh, to be with the rest of the family in Dallas. But, you know, growing up with my grandfather, when he would call um, and when he would talk to all the grandchildren, he had two questions. How is your education going? And what sports are you playing? And he always taught us that no one could take our education from us. It was the most important thing for us to have. And he also emphasized that to, um, he only had one grandson and he had four granddaughters. So he really emphasized that to the granddaughters. And he also uh, believed sports were really important. And, and I don't know if you, people, a lot of people don't realize he was a hall of fame um, NCA wrestler at the University of oh, Minnesota. Wow. I had no idea. And he, his, huh. His dream had been to be the shortstop for the Chicago Cubs, not to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, well. He kind of fell short of that. But he really believed that sports taught you how to win, how to lose, how to respect other authority figures, not just your parents or your teachers. And he felt that if you learned adversity and how you had to get pull yourself back up and get back into the game and, you know, how to work in a team and all of those important lessons he really he always said that's he took what he learned in wrestling and, and brought it into the fields with the plants so every borlaug grandchild was a pretty avid um athlete there is no artist no artist in the borlaug <laughs> unfortunately but those are things that were really important to my grandfather as i got older i became more interested in what he did and I remember one Christmas asking why the U.S. didn't sign the Kyoto Treaty. And we started at the Big Bang Theory and um, somehow got up to the 2000s or 1990s. <laughs> it took about six hours. But um, from then on, he and I were really close. So it was really fun when I was at the Borlaug Institute to actually get to know him as a colleague, in a sense, and, and to spend that time with him. So that was exciting.
That's incredible. And it's, and it's a perspective that obviously none of us have. And in the ag industry, we're very aware of him and his work, but sometimes we have listeners that are consumers and maybe aren't as involved in agriculture and maybe they don't even really know who he was. They've maybe heard the name. Can you tell us a little bit about his work and we'll get into some of his accomplishments then? He was known for uh, what's called the Green Revolution and and a little background. So my grandfather was going to go work. A lot of people don't realize this. He worked at DuPont during World War II and they told him if he was going to stay, he needed to go get a PhD um, in chemistry and he didn't want to do that. So um, he had a PhD already in plant genetics. So he decided to go back and talk to um, Dr. Stakeman, who was his mentor at University of Minnesota. And what ended up happening was back in that time, people were concerned with the state of Mexico. And a lot of people were concerned about if Mexico was become a little leftist or, you know, fall towards uh, the Russian side of things. And um, the incoming president was Roosevelt and Wallace was his VP. And of course, Wallace was um, pioneer after his presidency and, and hybrid seeds and all of that. So Henry Wallace and his wife drove down as incoming uh, vice president to Mexico to see the state of Mexican agriculture. And he realized how horrible it was. And they wanted to do something, but no one wanted to get the US directly involved in Mexico. So they worked with the Rockefeller Foundation and Rockefeller worked with the Mexican government and two breeders were sent down. My grandfather is the wheat breeder and a maize breeder followed shortly. So that's how my grandfather ended up. He got on a train in the 1940s. I think it took him like four days or five days and he ended up in Mexico. And that's where he began his program. If you fast forward ahead, he was able to develop a wheat variety that was shorter growth rate, and it was dwarf, it was shorter stature, disease resistant, higher yielding. He was able to do that in a way that was called shuttle breeding, and that's where it, the um, plant itself wasn't as light sensitive, so photosynthesis, and you could have uh, two breeding seasons, so in Mexico, the highland and the lowland, and it ended up that the wheat could be used in other countries and movable very easily or adaptable very easily. So when India and Pakistan were expected to have mass starvations in the 50s and 60s, Indian researcher reached out to him and they talked about bringing what they called at that point, Borlaug wheat over. And it all worked out. Uh, my grandfather brought probably less than hundred, I'm not quite sure of, um, researchers um, from India and Pakistan, of course, not at the same time, down to Mexico. And his uh, reason for doing that was he wanted these young researchers to be able to learn something new and not have their elders standing over them. And because he knew the system he was teaching them was going to be innovative or, you know, it, it, it was new. And so at the time, um, farmers were less likely to want to try something with this pending um, famine coming on. So he was able to teach these young researchers to be science. He, he taught them to be um, warriors against hunger, but not with guns and daggers, but science and technology. And then he sent them back to India and Pakistan 
and uh, they would do trial plots in their fields. The older farmers would see that it was working and it would multiply. And so within three to four years, India and Pakistan were each grain self-sufficient and the mass um, starvation that had been predicted uh, actually was averted. And he was able to receive the Nobel Peace Prize through the window of peace. And he, he was famous for saying, you can't build peace on empty stomachs. And uh, it was through the window of peace. Had there, the starvation actually happened and the two countries had gone to war together and all that that would have drawn in. So that is how he received the Nobel Peace Prize. From then, he was just a huge advocate for innovation, for agriculture, for youth in agriculture. Uh, for not becoming too ivory towered. He actually wasn't sure that GMOs would work until they took him into the lab and showed him how, and he was quickly converted. So he always, um, he always told um, researchers and companies to hurry up, not to wait, to push and be faster because the smallholder farmer and the um, starving could not wait um, for, um, eloquent, as he called it, policy debates and ridiculous regulatory. So um, those are some of the things he was famous for. Um, he was a huge, he, his entire life was focused on ending hunger and creating innovation in agriculture. And I will say, he talked about holding a child who was starving to death while he was in Africa. Oh, wow. Mm. And um, what that felt like when he could not help the mother at that point because the child was so far gone but he could look back at the United States and other parts of the world and what we were able to do and why couldn't we do that in Africa or Asia and so he uh you know his his last words were take it to the farmer before he passed away so he um lived breathed and died thinking of agriculture so you mentioned dwarf wheat, I guess, is there any way you could kind of dial into that a little more, it's especially for the non-agricultural listeners and maybe describe at a deeper level, maybe what that was, what, how farmers, you know, what wheat looked like before some of the benefits of, of this dwarf wheat? The importance of my grandfather utilizing dwarf wheat was that wheat at the time was really high. So if you look at corn in a field, corn is currently really high. Well, for the wheat to become more productive, you increase the yield, but as you're increasing that, the wheat becomes heavier. And so it falls over. And when it falls over into a field, um, it molds, it gets um, eaten. Uh, it has all of these other problems. And, and also uh, it takes a lot of energy for a plant that's very tall as wheat was, um, when you could just make it shorter and it wouldn't have to use up unnecessary energy to grow really tall, but actually the uh, wheat seeds could be uh, more robust and, and heavier. So that was the point of dwarf wheat. You see it happening right now with corn where uh, people, and, and I believe Bayer is working on um, short stature corn. What's interesting about the dwarf wheat, my grandfather didn't invent dwarf wheat. This is kind of a nostalgic look at agriculture back then, but there were scientists from all over the world who were sharing their germplasm and different traits with my grandfather. And the dwarf wheat, I believe, came out of China. So when you think about what my grandfather was able to achieve, it wasn't just his work. It was the work of many scientists 
globally who were sharing information and furthering upon each other's research. So when you look at where we've come in agriculture, it's because so many people have crossbred and, and it just mainly shared the information they had so someone could build upon and make a stronger wheat plant or maize plant or, or whatever. But that was one of the big importance of dwarf wheat. It was shorter. You didn't have to worry about it falling over or all the um, negatives that came with that. And then you could get hardier seeds. Your grandfather's work was incredibly impactful. He won probably hundreds of awards. I think, did I read that he won the, not only the Nobel Prize, but also the presidential, some presidential medal and the Congressional Medal of Honor maybe, and was one of only a handful of people ever to win all three of those awards? So he won the Nobel Peace Prize, the Presidential Medal, and the Congressional Medal. And that's within the United States. So, well, the last two, of course, were in the United States. There, I believe, have been five people who have won all three. Mother Teresa is one of them. Martin Luther King Jr. is one of them. So it's a wonderful, wonderful list. Uh, He also has received awards from all over the world. And two that he always liked to mention, he um, has the Azteca, which is kind of the equivalent of the presidential medal in the United States, but that's in Mexico. And he also has the equivalent of those two from India. And I'm not going to say that the name right, but I believe it's the Padmia Bush. I, I, I can't argue with you. <laughs> Good. So those, those um, were really important to him. Uh, one, because he, uh, you know, from the United States, so the two from the United States, and then he spent so much time in India and Mexico. And I believe he has an equivalent, something um, from Pakistan. But the Nobel Peace Prize is really special because he's from Norway and it's given in Norway. So it, as some said, it was a, a Norwegian coming home. So those were all the awards that he always talked about. But again, he, he has so many honors. He wasn't one to sit around and look at them or talk about them or anything. What was important to him was when he received an honor, it gave him a platform to talk about the need to push innovation and to solve hunger and poverty and and think beyond where we were. And he would always challenge, you know, environmentalists who who didn't understand the the, um, debate that if we could increase yield on less land, then that saved forest, which also saved wildlife. And for some reason, he called them the greenies, didn't understand that argument. So that was really hard for him. But those were his his big important awards, but they also more importantly gave him a platform so he could talk about the need for increasing funding publicly for research and the need for countries to have their own regulatory system and and the need to hurry up and, and to remind people that there were children starving every day and that we in the West were very fortunate, but it wasn't that way with 90% of the world. So we needed to look beyond ourselves and, and think about how we could all contribute. From some of the things you've said, you know, sort of getting a better picture of, of his personality, it seems. And I imagine from my perspective, it sounds like he obviously he was very driven towards his goals. And he probably, some of this criticism of the Green Revolution and of modern agriculture 
maybe he didn't have a lot of patience for that. How did he deal with that kind of criticism? <laughs> no, he didn't have a lot of patience for that. When, <laughs> not at all. Um, my grandfather was one who, if you were going to give a, a highly emotional argument to, he would say, we don't, you know, I'm not going to get into an emotional argument with you. I'll have a scientific based argument with me. I'm not going to, you know, there's no room for emotions when children are starving. Um, so it was really hard for him. And, and I will say that I, I was helping him. So in, in 2008, when sky, you know, food prices skyrocketed, skyrocketed, we had the Arab Spring. All of a sudden, people wanted to talk about Norm Borlaug again, or talk to Norm Borlaug again. And uh, Fox Business called and wanted to have an interview with him. And um, of course, we said yes. And uh, I was prepping him for the interview. And I said, to daddy, you were going to have to address climate change and the importance for sustainability. And he's, you know, he was like, I don't have time to go into all of that. I've got to tell them to innovate. <laughs> like, if you don't address these issues where the public is so concerned, they're not going to listen to you. <laughs> Ended up, we didn't get to do the interview because something else bigger happened that day. But it was funny for me to be debating a Nobel Peace Prize winner on what he had to say. But yeah, he, he, he didn't take kindly to the attacks on him. He felt no one understood what was at risk. And, and he also always said to people, no one else had another um, alternative. No one else was working for another alternative. Yes, they overused um, you know, fertilizer because they had to um, grow as quickly as they had to. Yes, they over-irrigated, but a lot of these were unintended consequences, the, the runoff and, and, and all of the um, environmental degradation. But he always asked, were you going to stand up and be one of those who starved to death? Or were you okay with an innovation or a new system coming in to save your family? And uh, that would close off a lot of argument most of the time. But even at the end, it still bothered him that we had Luddites, as he would say, and those who didn't understand how innovation could balance what was going on with climate change and conservation. And unfortunately, he didn't have a conversation with people. It became a little more heated. And so that's why it's important that all of us now have conversations about why we're passionate about innovation and technology to address all of these things versus a one-sided conversation. But it was it was hard for him, and it was hard for him, you know, in the end, to um, know there was nothing he could do to change the conversation. And and I promised him I would I would do my best to to address this conversation and how we could change the thinking of so many who didn't understand agriculture or the importance of how innovation got us to where we were, or more importantly, not to romanticize farming of the early um, 19th century, 20th century, that it, it wasn't a romantic life and uh, it wasn't uh, sustainable at all or environmentally friendly. So I, I hope in some way I've done that. And I think a lot in agriculture have changed the way we talk about agriculture and humanized it a little more. A follow-up to that, Jason and I are pretty intimately involved with the criticisms of modern 
agricultural <laughs> technology. Uh, I usually, I like, I love the example of, I'm an entomologist by background. So, you know, 60 years ago, farmers had to apply arsenic on their fields to control insects, you know, and comparing that to modern day agriculture is quite the, the contrast. But do you have any advice for farmers? So farmers who want to help um, spread yes. the message of modern agriculture systems? Well, what's interesting is uh, I, I do not like when I hear a farmer say, I'm just a farmer, no one will listen to me because that's completely wrong. They're going to listen to a farmer more than they're going to listen to me or anyone coming from private sector. And, and unfortunately, they're going to listen to them over a scientist. They're, I mean, they're going to listen to a nutritionist who has an online degree um, more than they're going to listen to science. <laughs> but farmers are trusted. And uh, my company, we did a focus group. We did focus groups on certain phrases and, and you know, where we're consumers right now with agriculture. And they were all concerned about the treatment of farmers and they all trusted farmers. And so it's so important that farmers speak up. And, and I understand a lot are not um, comfortable speaking and, and that is perfectly fine. But those who are should take the opportunity to go talk to the public, invite them to your farm, anything you can do to engage people in a conversation. If it's not you, if, if it's the next generation in your family, uh, one of the greatest things I've ever gone to was the Arkansas Farm Bureau had a uh, media training and they brought in a full group to media train and they had about 50 farmers there. And the story was that there was a salmonella outbreak at the county fair. And how were you going to get the public to feel safe coming to the fair and eating the food? And then they threw everyone in front of a camera and then had everyone sit down and showed all of us, including me, what we did wrong and then how we should have addressed the question. So it was great media training. I think every farmer who wants media training should do media training. And I think, you know, not every Farm Bureau can do that, but I think corporations ought to help provide funding for media training for farmers and people on their farm, because it is farmers who know the most about their land are the big, biggest environmentalists, which that, that's one of the things that I don't understand is you know the one of the farmer's most important assets is his and her soil so they're not purposely harming their soil and people don't seem to understand that they just think farmers are going to throw you know as much input or as many inputs in as possible and not worry about the soil well that's not the way it is so if we can have farmers talk about those issues and make it personal and invite them out uh, that would change everything but we have to give them the opportunity and the tools to do that yeah, that's, that's true. Sometimes we see locally a, a new hog farm will open up and it seems like a lot of times they do really good about getting the public to come out and look at the farm and talk about it. And I think the pork producers, for instance, have done a good job of that. There's obviously room for improvement in other areas of agriculture also. And I think that's great advice. The ones that are interested in doing that should really be a part of the conversation. Julie, you mentioned early on that genetics is in your blood, and uh, obviously innovation is in your blood also. We always like to look to the future as we get to the end of our podcast. What about the future is most exciting to you? What do you see coming in agriculture? Gene editing. Is, it, although it's here, we don't have edited products available yet, but I think what we can do in gene editing is going to be um, revolutionary, and then where we can go from there. 
when you look at breeding overall from um, what my grandfather was able to do to Henry Wallace, to whether it was GMOs to where we are with gene editing, it's all been a progression and it all gets better. And with gene editing, we can bring back diversity within plants. We work solely within the plants. So there's nothing foreign coming in, which seems to make the public happier. But there's so many things with climate change that we're going to have to address and we're going to have to do it locally. It's not going to be a one size fits all. You know, we had the whole locust plague this year in, in parts of Africa. If we can find a solution, whether that's through gene editing or something else, because you're an entomologist, so you're, you're I shouldn't be using this example, but if we are able to rapidly through data and precise breeding, find a localized solution, then we can um, quickly starve off the, um, the massive impact these types of plagues can have or wheat rust or maize leaf necrosis. So this would make a big difference towards food security for different countries and different people in, in the region. And, and so that's why I'm so excited about gene editing. I think the power of it, the precision of it, how you can you know, affect more than one trait is just the beginning. So where we can go from there is it's going to be exciting. Everyone knows we have COVID right now. Well, we have that in agriculture as well. We have wheat rust, we have citrus greening, uh, we have coffee rust, um, maize leaf necrosis. I know I'm missing so many others. So we have that within our own industry and we better be able to be efficient innovative enough and, and be far enough ahead with research that we can have quick answers and solutions to these problems. Just like COVID, agricultural plagues and, and, and diseases just don't stay in one area. They move with people, they move with the jet stream. So just because it's in Asia at one point or somewhere in Africa, it will get to the United States or the rest of the world. And we're absolutely seeing that right now, even with yeah. uh, tar spot coming from Mexico and coming into the Midwest over the last couple of yeah. years. So we definitely see that. Great. Well, Julie, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us here today. Is there a place where our listeners can go to learn more about you and some of the things that, that you're involved with? Yes. So you can find me on um, Twitter at Julie Borlaug. And you can always message me there and I will get back to you. I love to anyone to contact me if they want to hear about youth and agriculture and all these great programs to get younger people involved. Um, please message me. I'm, I'm a huge advocate for women in agriculture and of course, innovation in agriculture. And if you have a counter opinion, please send it to me because I always like to learn from other opinions and how I can better address agriculture. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.